This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hello? This is the Brickflix Frightfest Preview Series 2019. The Brickflix podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen and please rate and review us you can just rate us they all have star meters which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all just click on it and you're done and it'd be really helpful trust me the higher the star meter the more reviews we get the more ratings we get the more the britflix.com podcast goes up the charts please 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 come on i'm begging you now everyone listening Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type BritFlix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast, FrightFest 2019 preview series. My name's Stuart Wright and this episode's guest is Rob Grant. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed, just for the listeners' benefit, our preamble, which largely involved Ween album appreciation, which is never a bad way to start your first conversation with someone. No, I'm not as knowledged as you. I just know whenever I'm hearing a song by theirs, I always have to guess, is this made by Ween? And that's usually a good sign. <laughs> no, no, I still do that. I forget some of the tunes. I'm like, oh, right, yeah, another Ween one. Right, yeah. then. but we haven't, we haven't come to talk about 90s and noughties uh, alternative music history. We've come mm-hmm. to talk about your film that's playing at Friday Fest, which is called Harpoon. Yep, that's uh, it, and it uh, it wasn't always called that. Well, we'll but, get to uh, that. We'll get to that. Yeah, in we can minute. get to that. <laughs> but, but before we do, and to give people, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can click on it to find out times and tickets and the like. But oh. um, do you want to give people their incentive by giving them a synopsis as to what Harpoon is all about? Yeah, the pitch that we, because this movie's always been a hard, a tough, tough, tough sum up. And so the pitch that we always give is if you've seen Roman, Roman Polanski's Knife in the Water or Dead Calm from the 90s, a boat movie about three people, you know, stuck on the water betraying each other. But then by way of Seinfeld characters is kind of our pitch on, on how the movie <laughs> portrays itself. So, that's, yeah. a, that's a brilliantly <laughs> accurate way of describing it. I would never have, I wouldn't have gone there. So you've obviously fine-tuned that. We've had to work on that a lot because prior to that it was uh, 
three people on a boat, uh, bad stuff happens. They're all betraying each other. But then, yeah, you got to toss in the uh, the dark comedy but, or and selfishness, perhaps, of Seinfeld characters to really drive home what's going on there. True, true, true. And also, I mean, one of the things we, we, what I will endeavour to do is not spoil the film. So we'll try and keep it general or out of context at the very least. Perfect. Because obviously the whole betrayal thing and, and whatever is how the brilliance of the drama unfolds. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, the opening one is just there's some general distrust. And then as soon as you throw in a survival situation, that general distrust kind of exacerbates itself. So I think that's a that's a, a good way of keeping it vague. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, um, before we go into more detail about writing and making this film, um, I'm asking all guests to talk about a memory. Uh, I'm sorry. It's the 20 years of it's the 20th anniversary of Fright Fest, so therefore I'm asking mm. all guests to give me a memory from their 20th year, 20th birthday, best gig they went to was that year, or whatever it might be from when they were 20. Uh, what mm-hmm. are you going to tell us, Rob? Um, well, first of all, let's see, I'm really excited to finally be a part of Fright Fest. It's my first time going to the festival, so that's exciting. And for it to be the 20th, 20 year anniversary is even more special. Mm. Um, what, what I've got is. When I was 20 is the year before we released uh, my first movie yesterday, which was a crazy zombie movie shot on on film. Uh, um, we shot it when I was 19 and spent two years editing that thing. And I remember feeling really in the gutter about what the heck we were supposed to do with this movie. Is it going to work? And then the reason I thought of that is because it's now 10 years later and we're releasing Harpoon. And the same feeling kind of, it never really goes away. Uh, you're still just as concerned about is the movie going to work? How are people going to react to it? And so I just thought it was an interesting experience that a decade later, I'm still dealing with the same uh, personal emotions. And that's kind of my 20-year <laughs> memory of Yeah, no, it's interesting, it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of people would mistaken growing experience with kind of growing confidence. And I remember watching Scott Frank do a screenwriter lecture at BAFTA. And he talk, and you know, you think of the films that Scott Frank has wrote and directed, and you think that man can't be, must be, you know, nerves of steel these days. Just goes in, does a yeah. Scott Frank movie, and he says he gets scared to death the minute he's looking at the blank page and the blinking cursor for a new project. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, fuck off, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's strange. So yeah, I was I mean, I was 20 years old. It was right when the digital revolution was kicking off, and mm. uh, we were dumb enough to think that we could still try and shoot a. A rom- an homage to Romero on 16 millimeter uh, short ends that were all stored away and begged and borrowed from our fridge and had broken five cameras in the process, not knowing what we were doing and transferring by night and thinking that we had made a piece of shit that no one would want to watch. And I kind of feel like, yeah, it's like, you know, you've, you feel like you may have grown as a filmmaker, but those same nerves kind of follow you the entire time. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, in a way, that's kind of a sense of without being too over the top about it it's like keeping it real isn't it the minute you think you're hot shit is the minute you're yeah. not isn't it in a way probably at least that's i my my uh one of my cohorts who's kind of been with me through the process for 10 years has said the same thing he's like if you don't if you feel like you haven't learned anything it's like that's a bad sign uh, so totally so well, let's 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 get on to harpoon then which like you say like we say is playing at fright fest this year um, perfect now you wrote and directed it. You you, you wrote it with um, with Mick Kovach, is that Mike Kovach? Mike Kovach. Yeah, he did additional writing. I wouldn't say he's co-writer, but I'll yeah. give him the, all the props in the world because he's he was he's the guy who actually reminds me of who always reminds me if we're not learning, you know, we're in a bad way. Um, 
but he's the one who kind of came in the last minute and helped finish and clean up and polish all the narration, which I think without his help, the movie would have landed far flatter than, than, than it needed to. And uh, so I give him all the credit in the world for making cool. sure that he helped cool. me so, on that. So, on the, on, so for the meat of this screenplay then, what for you was the sort of brain fart that you had that led to this film being up, being available at breakfast this year? Um Pure frustration, I think. I had just finished another movie that uh, I was a director for hire on. Mm. Uh, um, and then before that, I had done Fake Blood, and I was in a real experimental phase slash a rut, and I was worried that I wasn't going to get another opportunity to make another movie. So I pitched my producer. I just wanted to go for broke and kind of do kind of like a Richard Linklater movie, but, you know, a genre film. Yeah. Uh, I love hearing people talking and I have all these themes of stuff and friendship and betrayal that I felt like I hadn't touched on yet. And I wanted to do it in a really go for broke way. And that was kind of the nugget of the idea. Now, the way I write, though, is different where it's, you know, I'll come up with uh, a, a concept or an idea and then I'll have to sit it in either my notebook or in the notes on my phone. And it has to sit there for at least two years because I find that if I get excited about an idea right away and start writing about it without having sat on it for a long time. I get to page 30 and then it dies because I just haven't, I haven't, I don't know it as intimately as I should. And so usually, you know, like if I were to scroll through my notes in my phone right now, I could scroll for a couple minutes because there's just all these little nuggets of ideas. And over the years, some of them combine with another. So I'm sure how it originally ended up was, you know, three people stuck on a boat was one idea. And then, you know, Three friends in a love triangle was another idea, and over over a portion of a couple of years, those meld meld together until I've got the one idea, and I can finally vomit out a, 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 a like a, a draft in, in a really quick amount of time. That's usually really bad, and then my producer comes in and goes, "Have you considered this? Have you considered this?" And then that's how we start refining. So that was pro that's kind of the long winded gen genesis of how Harpoon came about. But I did pitch him uh, in. 2018 in October uh, uh, that I wanted to do this and we were sh uh, October of 2018 I hadn't written a page yet and then we were shooting it by January Gee whiz. So, <laughs> yeah, that January yeah so when the by the time I have the idea set in stone in my head it's usually not far away from from where we needed to get to how far how far down the road were you in terms of how the ending resolved itself was that was that always your kind of clear point and how to get there or was that something that came out of the development of it it was i always knew one of two people were going to be responsible at the end uh and then as the writing um came out i realized uh who it needed to be pretty quickly okay. um and that's kind of how I, I like it. I know it seems. Yeah, it's the funny thing was I read Stephen King's on writing like right before writing this. Excellent book. Oh, no. Yeah. And he actually because before that, I've always been very methodical about um, before I'll start writing the script. I'll write down one through 90 uh, and then that'll symbolize a minute of each uh, of the movie and mm. I'll make sure that all of those numbers are filled out before I start writing it. For this one, I didn't do that and I feel like it was for a very specific reason because I knew there'd be a lot of um, these interaction and talking that it just didn't uh, uh, it didn't feel it didn't feel like it was going to work correctly to have it that mapped out. Got you. So I, I had just the general, like I knew what I wanted to tell, I knew where it was going to go and I knew the general beats and I kind of took Stephen King's advice where he says, he's like, oh yeah, when I was writing Carrie, I just, you know, the first draft, he's like, I just let it fly and then I go back and 
find out what the theme is afterwards. So I took his advice on that one. I kind of knew the general ideas that I wanted to touch on, but then I just let it fly on the first one. And that's why it came out so quick. And then after that, then you can kind of start refining themes and little tidbits and kind of then placing in the beats. And that's kind of, it was my first time doing it on this one. And I feel like it, it, whether it was just the script of it, it just lent itself to that style of building the story. It must have been something in the air because up to August 2018, I was hardly doing the same thing. <laughs> nice, yeah. Because <laughs> I sort of went balls to this outlining stuff. Uh, and the director I was working with, stroke producers, just says, said to me, look, don't worry too much about the narrative. Let's just find out who the characters are. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of exactly the same thing we did. And I, I, it might have been because I think my producer said the same thing when I pitched him. He's like, oh, you know what? I haven't seen a lot of indies out on the boat recently. Hmm. <laughs> and so he felt like, A, you know, we also agreed that, you know, the cabin in the woods has kind of been done to death right now. Hmm. It's like, where else can we do it on a budget? I live right on the coast here in Vancouver, British Columbia. My friend has a boat. If we had to do it on the cheap, we could have done it there. And that was kind of, that was the kind of the thumbs up for us to realize, you know, all right, let's try something on a boat. It also just looks vastly different, I think, than yeah. here at the average setting for, you know, creepy woods, cabin, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, so you, you mentioned that, um, that Mike, Mike sort of came in and helped you polish up your, uh, Mm-hmm. You've, you've, the, uh, the narrator voice that sort of is a kind of... So, yeah, I should clarify. we got two mics. Mike Peterson is the producer. Mike Kovacs, the, a close friend who kind of is in the background helping me on, on, on and or working on most movies with me. Got you. Got you. <laughs> yeah. and, but but it's, it's, it's a strong stylistic choice to go with a voiceover narrator, isn't it? Yes, yes. And that came about due to, uh, as I was writing the characters, I realized uh, I didn't want... I didn't, they were supposed to be very old friends and I was getting pissed off that I was having to write them expositional dialogue that gave um, them being the like backstory of their friendship. And I, I was getting really angry with myself because I was like, friends don't talk like this, especially old friends. They have this shorthand where, where they don't have to even mention past things except in like a passing way. And so that's when I realized right away, I was like, okay, I need a narrator to just cue up their backstory so that these people can interact uh, far more naturally with one another. Cause I have a group of old friends from, you know, early high school where I interact very much the similar way where you, you mention something, but it's in a very passing way that an outside audience wouldn't pick up on what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, uh, and so that's where the narrator came in. So that was in draft one because we knew that, you know, I just didn't want them to be like, Hey, remember that time that we did this together? I just didn't want, want that in there now it, they, the narrator was vastly different it touched way more on the nose about the themes of the movie it was far more cynical against these characters and then we realized through a whole bunch of test screenings that if the narrator was judging these people doing bad stuff it kind of made the audience do the same thing and we realized that after various drafts that we had to kind of open it up that he was more presenting these characters so that it kind of opened the audiences up a little more to not be so cynical against these people, at least right off the hop. No, and I like, I like it. It made me laugh in the the opening salvo, which I think is not. This isn't spoiler territory because it's like the first two minutes. Yeah, uh, it made me laugh to think of Aristotle considering foot buddies as uh, <laughs> as part of his philosophy on what friends mean. Yeah, absolutely, and I can that can go. All the props can go to Mike <laughs> Kovac because he was the because I I was like I'm stuck here. I don't know what the opening presentation should be. How much it should be on. Because originally it was much more on the, we were originally touching more on the theme of uh, 
that life life doesn't fit into a genre because the mm. movie does kind of shift genres a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, we were touching them far more on, you know, a guy, someone could think they're in a love story and then suddenly be in a horror story. But it was Mike that's like, no, man, I think you need to just go back to uh, the basis of friendship. And that was kind of where he kind of brought in a really smart idea that kind of set up what stage of friendship these three were at and what they wish they they, they were still at. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, I mean, what, what's interesting about your location and, and for storytelling at that is that it is maybe the last vestiges of, of where to go on earth where you haven't got a cell phone and it isn't just a cheap story trick. Yeah, that was important to us too, is that we didn't have to really explain, whoa, the cell reception. Like we even, we, the, I mean, there's a blip where we show someone trying to get cell, cell reception, but we've all felt like at least we didn't have to be like, oh, we're so far away. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's sort of clean and neat. And it's like, obviously, as, as addicts to phones, we're still going to try as, as, yeah. um, as, as Emily Tyra's character does. But, but it isn't. Yeah. It isn't a possibility. So it's quite nice that to, to sort of feel comfortable that we were out the bounds of where normally we could just go, "Hey, mom, I'm stuck in the sea. Can you come yeah. and help me?" I appreciate that. Yeah, that's it's that's like cell phones have kind of ruined a lot of horror movies in that way because everyone has to explain why they can't call someone. <laughs> Talking of which, now, and this is this is maybe a, a, a tiny observation, but it, it, again, it sort of tickled me. The notion that Richard makes a phone call to Jonah at the start. And Jonah's response is, why are you calling me, not texting me? Yeah. Is, that, is that a kind of millennial thing that, that in the sense of nobody phones each other anymore? For sure. And uh, that was an important detail to me. It's, I, I mean, I even fall into that trap where it's like, is this important? <laughs> like, why didn't you just message me? Um, that's, that was just one of those little, again, I wanted to harken back is that I wanted these relationships to feel real, that yeah. these people live in a, in a world where this is how they interact with each other. It's no, either no, in, per no, I in I person. Thought, I, I'm going to say, yeah, because I thought it was a really, not, it was a really uh, yeah, it, it felt like a familiar moment, but also just to generally speaking, yeah. there are now a generation of people who could message you on about eight different apps, mm -hmm. but the idea of speaking to you in real time, if it's not face-to-face, -face, is like, yeah. Unless you're landing a fucking plane, I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, it means there's something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and as a ca as characters go, and I know obviously the, the narrator tells us stuff, and I feel sorry for I don't feel sorry for that's a bit, a bit over for stretching the stretching the point, but it's it's with with the advent of um, of pantomime villains like Richard Spencer in in the public sphere with his with his haircut. Um, and your your actor Christopher Gray's haircut being not too dissimilar. When he begins <laughs> to act like that, kind of he's not a rate, he's not a fascist. Don't let me just let me correct yeah. the audience before they go that far. But just being the general entitled arsehole. Yeah, that kind of haircut. That haircut is that privilege. <laughs> yeah, that haircut is a short is a short is a shortcut to understanding that kind of person. Yeah, he uh, that's not his natural hair, and uh, we told him like you've got to go for this this haircut. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's got like naturally curly hair, but that doesn't scream that doesn't scream privilege. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's like really scary how I kind of I bought into him, you know, beyond like the Ralph Lauren clothes and stuff. It's like the hair you kind of right away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's you look at him, he's one step away from handing him the tiki torches and marching <laughs> on. You know? um, yeah, that was that, that was a discussion, and then he, just also he we wanted him to have a very similar look to one of the guys from from Polanski's A Knife in the Water. I think the shirt's like a dead dead ringer. 
mm. from it. Um, but yeah, it was important that, you know, I mean, the movie itself, uh, you know, without trying to get into too much uh, about the diversity aspect and stuff like that, you know, this movie is about privilege on all three of them. And that, I, that I, you know, as the movie goes later on, they all expect something from the other characters. And it felt like, you know, they had to all have play that part. And the fact that it's three white people on a rich boat also, I think, plays into it. So <laughs> there's a there's a lot of themes there that we kind of just put subversively rather than touch on it uh, uh, overtly that kind of scream, scream to what they all want in life from each other. And yeah, from yeah. The yeah. I'm going to say, cause also, cause you could argue that you could argue that, that Richard just wants people to knock about with so money affords him that privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, Jonah thinks it's, it seems to be that everything's grossly unfair. Yeah. And that he's put upon yet, obviously his friendship with Richard affords him certain luxuries and, and yeah. the like, um, Obviously, ed university educated is already at a, at a level of privilege that you know we can all. But it just, it just, there is that kind of smell of kind of class war going on. Yeah, for sure. And it's just, I, it's also what they expect from each other, uh, but in a, in a very selfish way. It's like you know, friends are there to support you, but not to be a crutch. And I, we we made sure that to have a, a lot of those discussions. <laughs> I mean, because in. in a way, is it is in, in this day and age, is it is it even possible to sort of um, to sort of, tr you know, where, where um, in terms of what I can do for you, what you can do for me, versus mm -hmm. I trust you implicitly because we're just yeah. friends. It's kind of those relationships all blur, don't they? Once, well, once I mean, a certain age I, or whatever. I'd hope that those the ones that uh, the good ones don't end, don't go there. But very clearly, we're trying to say that these are bad relationships. <laughs> mm. So, so I think this is a model how not to approach friendship with one another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talk us through the sort of practicalities then of shooting a film on a boat. Uh, let us, let us in, let us, let us sit, peek behind the curtain. How far out from the coast were you? Uh, well, you know, the start was, you know, like I said, we had this script probably coming out around October and, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> right away, Mike started look, my producer, Mike Peterson started looking into where we could shoot, possibly shoot this. Uh, and I, I kept doing rewrites. Um, Michael Ironside actually, who he, uh, had worked with previously on his film, Knuckleball, even I had a discussion with, cause we were talking with him potentially of being the narrator. It didn't quite work out, but he gave some good script notes. Mm. Uh, and then Mike came across Fiji, who had like 60% tax breaks across the board. Wow. And so he started going down the rabbit hole of that until he found out that Fiji had turned, the Fijian government turned down the script on moral grounds. <laughs> and Mike's like, really? Why? He's like, yeah, we, they, we don't like the script. He's like, okay, well, what about if a Marvel movie came? He's like, well, that's different. They, they bring money. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So we got denied by them. Then we looked into where Lost had shot in Hawaii. Mm. But to take advantage of their tax breaks, we couldn't have flown in through Canada. It was really weird. Like we would have had to fly everyone to uh, Europe and then into the States. It was bizarre to get the work visas. And so we actually started shooting the interiors of the boat on a set that we built in the middle of winter in Calgary, Alberta, 2,000 kilometers away from from any ocean uh, before we had an exterior location or an, uh, an exterior boat. Uh, and then I think like five days into shooting, we, uh, we found Belize uh, in Central America 
uh, in a boat that fit the same dimensions as what we wanted to do uh, or what we were shooting in uh, in Calgary and it kind of we lucked out on that um, so that's just the crazy story of how fast this came together that we you know it was either push or shoot and so we just decided to shoot and figure it out as we went along um, I suppose even there's the clear definition the d delineation between the interior and exterior shots like yeah. you can you can kid us about the outside but obviously once you're outside you can't kid us and yeah. clear, clearly we are somewhere beautiful and exotic uh, in clear open ocean and stuff when we're, yeah. when we're up top yeah yeah and we did that on purpose like we always knew we wanted to shoot the interior as a set uh, just because I like I don't know how many real boats you've been on but they are tight in the hole uh, and we wanted to be able to fly walls out and you know just to control our lighting and uh, especially all the violence with and that's not giving too much away but all the violence that happens inside there you know cleaning that up on a real boat boats are expensive that that was risking a lot of damage deposits that uh, we probably wouldn't have gotten back so that was always the idea to build the set wherever we were going to do uh do it but yeah it's it was one of those things you know there we were risking having to push the movie and you know if you push the movie you risk the movie stalling out entirely so it's like while you have the momentum just take the bull by the horns and kind of go along for the ride is kind of how we thought about it. <laughs> how much were you spooked out by uh, the, the the natural laws of the ocean that you unravel in the film, given you were working with some of the rules of the, uh, some of the rules that you shouldn't disobey for the ocean while we, shooting a movie? We, like I had to do a deep, I mean, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but I, you know, I think it's the classic movie trope of three people stuck on the ocean. A talk of cannibalism is going to come up sooner or later. Mm. So, so I don't think that's going to be too much of a spoiler, but I had to do a real deep, uh, deep research on cannibalism at sea and uh, various uh, superstitions at sea. And I hope I never have to do those researches again. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it leads you down some hilarious and also grim rabbit holes because and I think the narrator pokes fun at it is some of these uh, uh, superstitions make little to no sense. Uh, and we even have the narrator say it as much in, in a couple of the lines that you couldn't figure out that why this superstition exists. But um, Yeah, having, having a Reddit on a boat, that was a new one on me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so we went, went in. I think it has to do with the uh, mermaids. I don't know why, but that's that's going to be my guess. Okay. Uh, um or like the sirens of the sea, whatever the heck they call them. But um, yeah, we peppered in as much of that stuff in there as we could. Originally, the narrator wasn't going to highlight and talk about them. They were all just going to be there. Hmm. Uh, and then we realized in the editing that it would be uh, a nice like reset and a break for chapter two of the, uh, of the story or part two of the story. So that kind of was built actually more in editing than it was hmm. in anything else. But as my production designer was the one who actually got more freaked out because he said the second we brought all these like bad omens either onto the set, he's like, things started going wrong for him all over the place, yeah, <laughs> Particular, but... particularly with the uh, albatross. Uh, and so he refused when we flew to Belize to bring the metal albatross with him. He's like, nope, I'm just not doing it. And so we didn't bring it. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, one of, the, one of the great things about the drama is that in that very sort of first scene, you give us the wholly irrational rationality of Richard, Christopher Graves' character, which mm -hmm. which kind of means that you have that... I mean, it's a bit like our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, the sense of when somebody can be that irrational, rational, mm -hmm. they can also be good the other way. They can be kind and soft because they're equally being irrational. There's been irrational the other way. So they can... Yeah. They can 
They can be as unexpected and kind and unkind. And nobody seems to be able to say you're inconsistent because that's the idea of lurching from one emotion to the next. And, yeah. <laughs> and in a way, he, he provides cover for quite a lot of what then becomes the revelations. Yeah, no, he's a bit bipolar in that aspect. And kind of, we always knew that we wanted to start the movie off with this bang uh, that kind of just set up everything and let people know that just not get too comfortable mm. uh, with the characters or with the where the script was going. And so that was always a, the idea to open the movie on a fight and see if we could get just the audi audience to buy in right away that they're going to have to play a lot of catch up. Uh, well, how successful that is, you know, TBD, we haven't had our wide release yet. <laughs> mm. um, but people seem to dig. The people that get the movie seem to dig that, that we started it that way to just set up that you're in for a bit of a, a, a tailspin of mm. a movie. Um, and I think that, yeah, Richard's flip-flops, they kind of all do the same flip-flops just because I feel the old friends do that as well. Like even with my producer, Mike, I've ha I have a tendency to fly off the handle and get upset about something when we're in the editing room. And then five minutes later, I'll be like, oh, sorry, let's go grab a beer. <laughs> and, it's, yeah. you know. I feel like old friends and uh, people that are close anyway are a little more able to show their emotions to one another in that way rather than someone that you're not very close to where you're, you're cautious still about what people think about you. I have the feeling that, you know, these people in their universe don't really give a shit about how they they're perceived with one another. And so that kind of allowed us to just let them fly off the handle and do all this crazy stuff to or with one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and, and it's, it's, it's brilliantly consistent how, in the end, it is three individual agendas all competing with each other, and, not, and it's almost like nothing nothing can win out with that because they're competing agendas. Especially in a survival situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, and in and in that sense, and, 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 and this is out of context. This shouldn't really be too meaningful to to the listener who hasn't seen the film. But the kind of absurdity of of of, of but also catharsism of the sex chat. Yeah, reduces our characters to. Like the first, like the like the first time they ever meet, which is brilliant. Yeah, uh, we. It's funny because that that chat verbatim, not verbatim, but very closely happened in real life. Wow, go on. <laughs> and I've always had that in the memory bank that I was like, this has to go in a movie because it's so who's, crazy. Who's who? Who was who were the parties? Were you I one of them? I was vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. My word, my word, you brave man. Putting that yeah. out there. Putting that out there. Yeah, well, no, it all works, doesn't it? It's. I always remember writing that. I was like, it's just one of those things that you get to a point where we needed to also show what they, how they interacted before uh, they got to this level of past or expired friendship. Mm. So otherwise, the movie would just be so exhausting. And so we wanted to show a little hint of how they interacted and how they could be nice and friendly and joke with one another before they kind of started to hate each other's guts. Because uh, that's kind of why they're still friends is they want to get back to that level. They just can't, right? Mm. <laughs> and that's kind of a nice little reprieve to remind people. It's like, oh, this is why they're still trying to be friends with one another. Uh, just because I feel like that was like a little break for the audience to remind even each other. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, because in a way, friends friends are hard to find. They're not, it's not like you just go out and get one. So when, yeah. when you have a history with people that might last yeah. more than five to t five years or so, yeah, that's more than most people you're ever going to meet. Yeah, you don't want to restart. <laughs> yeah, restarting friendship is all a bit kind of like, oh right, so you went to that school and you're like, you nodded and you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, do we have to give me? 
We just get yeah. a bit more having a laugh, and uh, yeah. and we put the Ween album on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's their that's their Ween album moment where they get to just joke with one another. <laughs> uh, can, can you tell us about your what your experience was like shooting out in the ocean? How was was there was there anything that you could for the filmmaker listening? Any top tips you you, you could pass on? Yeah, one hundred percent. The best thing that we did before we even got to shooting though, and this doesn't get to happen on an indie. Uh, or rarely gets to happen is my producer Mike did say he's like I think you're going to need rehearsal days just because of how much talking there is in the script and he blotted down and he flew the actors in uh, to our hotel three days before we went to camera okay. and so me and just me and the actors had three days in like the conference room at the hotel to literally go through the whole script each day and do either a little bit of tweaking to the dialogue or rewriting or just find how we would, they wanted to play each scene. So by the time we got on set, not only did they have a rapport with one another that I think came across that they were f starting to be friends, but it also just by the time we got there, we weren't having to figure things out anymore. Hmm. Um, like we lost a, a day shooting uh, because the set wasn't ready. It's a very intricate set. It's very beautiful, but we lost a day on a 15-day shoot, which is not very many. No, that's uh, what 15th of your shoot you lost. Yeah, So, but we made that back. Uh, and got a day ahead of schedule just because we, they were so, they had it so figured out uh, that we were able to just blast through it. Because we would shoot the entire 12 minute scenes as if it was a stage play. Okay. Uh, so we'd go from beginning to end. It would exhaust the crap out of the actors because we'd have to do it so many times every time we reset the camera. But it, 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 I think it helped with their performance. So that number one was, was a big prep in just making sure that by the time we even got to the exteriors, we kind of they they knew what we needed to do. Our camera guys knew what we needed to do. So we sh so we shot all the interiors to get to the exteriors. We shot all the interiors in script order as well. Right. Okay. So we went from the beginning to the end on all the interiors, so that our guys had a time to build facial hair as they went along. Uh, you know, so mm. that we got to destroy the set as we went along. We didn't have to go back. They got to stay consistently emotionally uh, in the same spot and characters as they oh, built yeah. to the end. And then by the time we went to the exteriors, you know, we had to repair the crew down because we couldn't fly everyone to Belize. So for the exteriors, we only brought our DOP, who also acted as our camera op. He got to bring one person, uh, one person only, and it was our uh, his grip. He played his grip, his gaffer. He was our DIT, pulling camera cards and focus puller. Uh, and he didn't, and they didn't get to bring any lights. So only a bounce board with them for the exteriors. So it's kind of like the opposite of the interiors. It's like, okay, you got all this fancy gear. We got to bring all these nice dollies and tricks to do on the interiors, all this lighting. And then the exteriors, it was like, okay, now you got to do the opposite and figure out a way. It kind of was like a nice little separation for us in that regard. I was going to say, because that, that's quite, because that, there's quite a lot, from what I can remember watching it, there's quite a lot of kind of, I guess what you call choreography, I suppose, of the, what's happening on top of the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so and that's the thing is, so the interior was very controlled and uh, almost very still, and we did that on purpose. And the exterior, we knew that since it was going to be handheld, that we were going to play it a little, a little looser with blocking and their movement and the camera work as well. And so that was kind of like we knew that going in that we were going to play it that way to kind of differentiate. But we also had to deal with, you know, you have to deal with uh, cloud cover. If they're in the background and a giant cloud rolls in and then you show the other side and it's this blazing hot sun, it doesn't work. So we had to be very, we had to be very uh, under the control of what was rolling in. And Belize, and Belize weather, is it pretty consistent? Is it, is it a good place to shoot? 
I mean, you know, the film gods were trying to screw us any way they could. The, we get there, the first three days we're pissing rain. We're like, does it rain here? They're like, it never rains here. Um, so you, but you get these troughs, so you get these tropical storms that just roll through and wet down the set pretty much. And you just got to take a break for 20 minutes and hope that it goes away. Other than that, it was just clouds. The biggest issue we had though, is that it was a blessing and a curse. You know, Belize has now the biggest natural reef break in the world because Australia's is dying. Right. Um, but that what that helps is that keeps the water calm uh, so that it, the boat's not rocking around on crazy big waves in the middle of the ocean. Um, but what that also entails is there's lots of scuba and snorkeling. And so the background, there's always boats and kayaks and catamarans like rolling through. And so we had to do like either we had to pause or reframe. So some of the framing is a little bit different than I would have liked sometimes, but we also did a lot of erasing of boats in the background to just make sure that it felt desolate because, uh, you know, it doesn't really work if the, to feel like they're stranded in the middle of the ocean if some guy's like kayaking through the background. And it happened way more often than you think where they're like staring right down the camera barrel and being like, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, I made a short film on, on, on the lake that inspired uh, Alfred Hitchcock to make the birds. There you go. And we discovered in post why he was inspired to write the birds, because there's so many freaking birds. Yeah. And you have to rub them out. Or, this, as you said, the idea of desolate becomes not so true when there's loads of birds knocking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets a little... Uh, so that you, have to, you have to learn a level of patience that you're going to blow, like, at least an hour or two a day on just waiting around for nonsense that you can't control. Uh, the other part was, you know, some scenes need to be shot as the sun's going down. And so it was, or sun's coming up. And so we'd have to like either get up really early, shoot, and then go on a break for a couple hours while the sun's directly over the head. And how far, it, how, I'm interested, how far from shore are you? Uh, closer than you think. <laughs> we had a own, we, we basically took over like a snorkeling um, resort in Belize where we were all staying. And it had, luckily it had its own dock. So the boat would just wow. be uh, tied to this dock. If we could get away with it, we would keep it tied up while we were shooting. Uh -huh. facing out, out to the open ocean. And then for ones where we had to just show whole boat in water, we, we boated out maybe like a kilometer or two uh, and shoot. But for the most, for the most part, the, without, you know, giving away all the secrets, the boat was tied up. No, it's, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating part of how, how the cameras are lying bastard, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, lo I, love, I love that fact because there's no way, no, there's, there's no other sense than, there in the middle of the ocean, you get through watching the movie. I mean, I, a friend of mine made a, made a movie about a guy who went went round the world in a boat, and yeah. the whole film never left Bristol. That's awesome. It's like a, well, it's like Bear Grylls, right? Didn't he get busted shooting on the side of a highway? No, did he? <laughs> yeah, he's supposed to be in the middle of the ocean, and he's like, yeah, drinking piss on the side of the highway or something like that. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, what for you was the kind of uh, most memorable day on the shoot? What what what? Where was you, where you say you say sometimes the film gods work with you? Where where were the film gods with you? What was what what's a memorable moment for you where you're like, thank you, film gods? Um, Jesus, that's a tough one. You see, the weird part is, and I'll maybe I'm the only one that's that's like this, but when I, I actually get really annoyed when I'm directing, it's like my least favorite part of the process. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of like the host of the parties never having any fun. It's just you're babysitting too much that can go wrong. Um, so it's all kind of like death by a thousand cuts to me. Um, but, you know, uh, 
Uh, I'd say some the, the interior is probably where it all went like as best it could. It had the, some of the most emotionally charged moments where you know you don't know whether that that sex conversation is going to work, especially even while you're shooting it. And then by the end, you're feeling like, okay, I think we got something, some honest and true moments there. Um, but probably the end climax where the real twists kind of reveal themselves relied on a lot of practical uh, uh, special effects and stuff to pull off. Um, anytime some of those actually, I would say that's where the film gods were our friend. There's two big moments where special effects were heavily involved that if they didn't work the way I wanted them to, it wasn't going, the movie wasn't going to work. Got you, got you. So are you, are you, in a way you're saying you're, you're a person that likes to have done it rather than do it. I always think of myself when I'm writing as someone that hates writing, but loves having written. Yeah. I mean, I'd put, if I was put it in order, it's editing's my favorites. Writing's my second favorite and directing's my third least favorite of the three things to do uh i'm an editor or was an editor by trade mm. uh, up and up until this past year and so that's probably the place i feel the most comfortable writing overwhelms me a bit because it can literally go anywhere and then i always have to kind of catch myself and say can i write can i pull this off in a if no one were to give me money for it <laughs> okay then, okay so you're kind of battling uh, the kind of creative yeah. constraints versus the fiscal constraints that are eventually going to arrive yeah, well, it's like I can't, <clears throat> I can't write and then hand a script off expecting someone else to do it. Like for, for, that's just not how I've ever bit, built my script. It's like if I'm writing something, it's because I want to pull it off. Okay, and so, so, you're yeah, not, so you avoid writing and fifty elephants come over the hill. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to be like, okay, how would I have to pull this off? <laughs> and so I, I do, I do like that part of it. But yeah, directing's the hardest one. You're just dealing with so many elements that can go wrong on a given day, you know. I guess as well, you must be more, even more kind of skewed, skewed into it because as an editor, you know what an editor needs. Yeah, that so you, is, that, that's helpful for sure because I can, everyone on, I can be like, okay, cut, moving on. And then they'll be like, are you sure we've got everything? You don't need to get this for coverage. It's like, no, no, I know how this is going to come together. So that's super helpful. But yeah, so the only reason I started directing anything, and this goes back to my 20th, 20th, my 20th year was when I first shot yesterday, it was because no one was giving me editing gigs. So I just said, you know, fuck it, we're going to shoot shoot our own movie, and then at least I'll have something to practice editing a feature. Got you, got you. Now, as as a as as given, it's such a, a sort of intricately uh, woven story that you've you've created, uh, mm -hmm. which you know obviously looks beautiful and is wonderfully told. As, Thank you. As I, as, as I, like I said to you in the message before we did this, but but when you were sitting down in that edit, what did the story reveal to you that hadn't been apparent? writing and shooting it what new things came to the table um for sure nothing really surprised surprised me i'm a ruthless editor so if anyone's going to be uh, chop, trying to chop the hell out of there or you know be self or critical about the movie it's going to be me mm -hmm. um so you know i always there's the, you know what they say there's the movie you write the movie you shoot the movie you edit and they're yeah. all different mm -hmm. um so in the editing department i try to keep my mind very open um, I do something that I find very helpful in the editing department, and hopefully this is something other editors can take with them, is I do something called line selects, uh, where I'll, instead of just starting to put a scene together with what I think are the best takes uh, or performances, I'll take every line in the movie and I'll cut into the sequence each line from every take uh, back to back to back to back. 
and I'll have, so by the end, I'll have a scene where each line is like 30 different versions or that or whatever, you know, from every angle of that. And then it's the next line and every version of that. And then maybe it's just them walking across from one side of the set to the other. I'll do every take where we see that. And that's how my first rough cut starts. And then I start pulling it out of that because, you know, what you think's the best take may not be the best take once you've compared it with the other ones or once you've seen it against the other lines in the scene. And that's kind of how I whittle so you, it. So you assemble scene. it almost like it's triplicate. Yeah, I'll go. If if I've done five takes on a on an actor, there'll be five different versions of that line on the on the timeline before it even before I even consider what takes the best to use. Yeah. Got you. Got you. Wow, I've never heard that before. That's amazing. Yeah, I learned that from uh, an editor called Bill Hoy, who used yeah. to fantastic editor on the War for the Planet of the Apes, mm. like the last two Planet of the Apes series. Um, and yeah, when I saw him doing it, I was like, oh man, that's, it's a pain in the ass to do because we would have to prepare those timelines for, for him and the director. But once you have that, it's like, oh, this totally makes sense. Now, and then say once you've even got this scene cut to a fine cut or like you're getting close to the end and you're maybe questioning one line, you can be like, oh, let's go back to the line selects and make sure we've got the right delivery of that line. It's super crazy and handy to have those. So that means, does that mean that that enable you to do the neat trick of taking the, the best delivered line and pairing it maybe with the best shot as opposed to if best. it fits with, if it fits within the mouth absolutely yeah yeah yep. yeah 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 got you okay yeah so we do we do all kinds of tricks like that so i'm really nothing really like surprises me or scares me the hardest part is when you're shooting because especially for a script like this is like you know you know that other people are thinking the same thing of like what the fuck are we making here like like, you know, it's the writing's on the wall. Everyone's thinking the same thing. And you just hope that, you know, that you're smart enough to pull it off. And then through the whole editing process, the problem is now you have no one giving you the confidence that you're going to pull it off. So you're kind of going through the whole editing process being like, shit, are people going to want to listen to a 10 minute scene of people talking about their sex life in a survival boat story? Yeah. So, you know, it becomes a lot of self I don't know, self-torture through the editing process because you're living with it for so long. And then by the end, you have no idea if it's working or not. And you start bringing in other people. And it's kind of the whole thing process is just kind of torture. <laughs> That's opening yourself up. <laughs> but it, but it is, it's a constant, that whole, the adage about writing is rewriting is, yeah. you know, shooting is reshooting and editing yeah. is re-editing. It constantly, it's all, it's, it's always enough. Every, all, all the creative processes are forever refining to a point that is as refined as it can be with what resources are available yeah and that's the thing though it's like you know it's easy i think we me and me and my producer have the same philosophy it's easy to get an edit to about 80 to 90 percent it's really easy to get a movie that's to, to viewable and then that last 10 percent though is the hardest part that last 10 percent can take the longest time whether it be your your just all that last little bit that takes the art extra bit of work that a lot of people i think don't really want to do or the self-critical evaluation that last 10 percent is the really hardest part so we'll get it to what we think is a great cut and then you know we'll sit on it and then we'll come back i was going to say what, what, trick, what tricks have you taught yourself to sort of be able to see your work afresh when you've spent so much time with it uh i mean I've done an, I've done edits where I'm either drunk. I've done edits where I've taken magic mushrooms beforehand and watched the cut just to see if I can get outside of my own head. You know, the best thing we do is usually we'll cut it, we'll think what's good, and then we'll sit it aside for a couple of weeks if we have the time. Mm. And then even when we don't have that and we were scrambling to make our um, premiere at Rotterdam, 
Um, you know, we watched it on the big screen there six times. That's probably one of the best things you can do is watch it with an audience or even just another person because a level of um, self-consciousness sets in that will make you instantly more critical of the of the film. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so observing somebody else watching it, you're kind of trying to yeah. read their mind and watch the film and then begin yeah. to see maybe you're, slight flaws that you wouldn't see just watching it on your own. Yeah. Yeah, you can convince yourself, but you can't convince another person. <laughs> um, so even after we premiered at Rotterdam, we opened the edit back up again to fix a few things. Mm. Um, it's So it's just like all those little tricks. What I would do is as soon as I got to a, a rough cut stage, a first assembly, once every Friday, I would just bring in a friend that I knew would be honest with me, and I'd watch it every Friday night. I'd present it to them every night and just ask them for honest feedback. And even if they were trying to be kind and padding their answers – just watching it with another person in the room would make me a lot more self-critical about it. And that, that kind of stuff helps. So I did that once a week for, you know, close to three months, uh, with some, yeah. So that's, it's that kind of, those kind of tricks I find definitely help. And then, you know, even now, even now I watch and I'm like, Oh, I could have, you could go on forever. That's the problem. I was, was going to say, yeah, I read, there's a book I read called Art and Fear. And in that he just, you know, he, he basically advocates the notion that nothing's ever perfect. And, the, yeah. and it's the pursuit of perfection that will kill us all. You know, yeah. you, 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 you're a, all the work you do is only ever a work in progress on your next piece of work. So yeah. everything you appreciate and understand about the film world from Harpoon will no doubt feed yeah. into whatever you do next. Yeah, it's, well, it's like we have a, we have a, a, a rule where, it's, can, where we will stop fixing stuff. Uh, otherwise, if we know that it won't drive us crazy when we're watching in the future. So like we'll be in the sound mix and it's like, Oh, can we live with that? Is it going to drive me crazy every time I see the movie? No. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. look, sir, let's, um, let's tell people when can they see this at Fright Fest? This is a good question. I should probably look at the schedule. Shouldn't I? Let me double check. <laughs> I think it's August 23rd. Shit. You caught me by by surprise here i think right, august we can, we can we can edit this now you see no no this is funnier <laughs> <laughs> real time looking for when your film's playing so you can tell people. well this is uh, and this is an insight if people want to know to how i uh, i treat my films is i'm very i cocoon myself very heavily when the movie starts being shown because i you know if you're too close to the criticism too close to the reviews it uh it can drive you mad and it can feel very awful uh, and it can take you down a hole of Googling yourself and Googling the reviews on a daily basis. And I try very hard to avoid all of it. Otherwise I feel like I'm doing the movie for the wrong reasons. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to put you out of your time, of your time search, uh, misery yep. for now. You're, I found it too. <laughs> you're Friday the 23rd of August. Yep. And you're in the Prince Charles cinema discovery one. Yep. And you're 9 PM. Does that sound right Perfect. to you? It does. Good man. It does. Well, so look, it I'll just... be I'll, I'll be there. I will not watch it, uh, but I'll be there for the uh, introduction and the Q and A after, and people can give me shit all they want. then. but yeah, I, I, for anyone that's that's maybe not built up a thick enough skin, just you got to be careful about why you're doing this. And if it's not for the process and it's for the results, then uh, you're in for a world of hurt. Sometimes I think. <laughs> no, totally agree. Totally agree. Well, look. I thoroughly enjoyed it, so I'll give you some pleasure, not pain, uh, <laughs> in terms of what you've made. But thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast.
Thank you as well. I mean, especially for these indies where it's harder and harder for these kind of things to break out. I just, I always want to make sure that I say a big thanks to anyone that's kind of championing these little weird, uh, weird movies, because uh, if we're not careful, they're all going to go away and it's just going to be uh, the tent poles left. So uh, it means a lot that when people want to help, uh, help push forward these uh, crazy little movies. Absolutely my pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something wrong, my friend.